Just in case, just in case, comes now the undersigned and hear my request with all due respect. From the honorable hills on her, out of your honor, do you want to pursue Hello and welcome to the March 6, 2017 edition of Just In Case, the podcast of criminal law cases, just in, from the Supreme Court of the United States, the Tenth Circuit, and the Kansas Appellate Courts. I'm Paige Nichols, and this podcast is brought to you by Monnet and Spurrier Chartered on the first and third Mondays of every month. Today I'll be talking about published cases of interest decided on or after February 20, 2017. But first, kids these days, am I right? Why can't they be like we were? Well, they are like we were. At least their brains are like ours were. By which I mean undeveloped, half-baked, missing some cognitive marbles, and we've got the science to prove it. That science is summarized in a new knowledge paper that was published last month by the MacArthur Foundation Research Network on Law and Neuroscience. The paper is titled, How Should Justice Policy Treat Young Offenders? I'm going to put a link to the paper in the podcast description on the Monnet and Spurrier website. This is a short paper that gives a great overview of how the law is starting to catch up with the science when it comes to young offenders, and it lists resources for further reading. Basically, recent neuroscience research confirms what every parent of teenagers knows, that adolescent brains are not yet fully mature in regions and systems related to impulse control, planning ahead, and risk avoidance. What happens is the brain's socio-emotional system becomes aroused at puberty years before the brain's cognitive control system is fully mature. This process is more pronounced in males, and it's been described as starting the engines without a skilled driver behind the wheel. Juveniles have brain plasticity, and they are uniquely capable of reform because their brains aren't yet fully formed. But, you know, these qualities that distinguish juveniles from adults, they don't magically disappear when somebody turns 18. Research shows that even in late adolescence, which is usually described as ages 18 to 20, important aspects of brain maturation are still incomplete, and they might stay incomplete until at least the early 20s. You know, Kansas law recognizes this, the developmental immaturity of 18 to 20-year-olds, right? Kansas requires, for instance, that a person be at least 21 years old before that person can buy, sell, or drink alcohol. Before that person can make a bet on an electronic gaming machine, buy a paramutual ticket, conduct adult-supervised driving, receive a pawnbroker's license, receive explosives, sell fireworks, practice dentistry, someday I'd like to be a, a dentist, practice podiatry, be a professional counselor, be a marriage and family therapist, be an addiction counselor, be an acupuncturist, or be a highway patrol trooper. So recognizing that young adults, even who are over the age of 18, are still immature when it comes to cognitive and social matters, some experts have called for juvenile systems to handle their criminal cases. Even experts skeptical of this approach agree that the adult system should treat young adults as a separate category of offenders. They are not fully mature, they are more likely to reform than older offenders, and they're also in a critical period of time when they need programs directed to their specific developmental needs. Imprisonment 
can powerfully influence a young adult's life in a negative direction. We all know that prison time is bad for employment, bad for education, and bad for civic engagement. So it's important to understand and use the brain science to keep young adult offenders out of prison so they can become productive citizens and assume conventional adult roles. You can read more about this in the sources listed in the knowledge paper. Again, that paper is called How Should Justice Policy Treat Young Offenders? I also want to recommend taking a look at the amicus briefs in the U.S. Supreme Court case Miller v. Alabama. That's the case that relied on this kind of neuroscience research to hold that juveniles cannot be subject to mandatory life sentences. And speaking of the United States Supreme Court, it's getting to be that time of year when we can start looking for this term's opinions to start trickling in. We do have quite a few criminal law cases still pending, both from federal and state courts. Last month, the court decided Buck v. Davis. This was that death penalty case with the lawyer who had put on a so-called expert at sentencing who testified that Mr. Buck was more likely to reoffend because he was black. No competent defense attorney would introduce such testimony about his own client, wrote Chief Justice Roberts for the majority. Likewise, it would be patently unconstitutional for a state to argue that a defendant is liable to be a future danger because of his race. These are the lessons that surely we all know by now, but it took Mr. Buck a very long time to get relief for this error. And that's because of the difficult standards for relief in the world of post-conviction review. Buck versus Davis has a lot to say about those standards, so if you do post-conviction work, especially in federal court, you'll want to read it closely. And that's all I have today from the High Court, so let's check in with the Tenth Circuit. I'm going to lead off with a couple of Fourth Amendment cases. In United States versus Lopez, the Tenth Circuit reversed two defendants' methamphetamine conspiracy convictions, holding that the district court should have granted their motion to suppress. A Kansas Highway Patrol trooper stopped the defendants for speeding, gave them a warning, questioned them about their travel plans, and then asked for consent to search their car. They refused. The trooper detained them anyway and waited on a drug dog who then found drugs in the car. This detention was illegal, despite the trooper's claim that the defendants were nervous, said suspicious things, and had suspicious travel plans. Here are some lessons from Lopez. About nervousness, the Tenth Circuit says, We have consistently assigned this factor limited significance. Because its measure is so subjective and innocent people can vary widely in how they respond to an encounter with the police, only extreme nervousness can substantially contribute to reasonable suspicion. Travel plans, too, doesn't carry that much weight, says the Tenth Circuit. We have generally been reluctant to give weight in the reasonable suspicion analysis to unusual travel purposes, at least absent lies, inconsistencies, or the like. Lastly, the government argued that the detention of one defendant was legal because she could have been arrested for driving without a license. The driver had a printed license receipt from the California DMV rather than an actual license. This sounds a little bit like what the DMV here in Kansas will give you when you go in to renew your license and you carry this piece of paper around until you get your laminated license in the mail. The dispatcher confirmed here for the trooper that the driver did indeed have a valid license. So once he had this information, the trooper should have known that the driver could not have been arrested for driving without a license. And that's because Kansas law says you don't get convicted of that crime if you show up later in court and you produce a valid license. 
or at least a license that was valid at the time you were driving. The Tenth Circuit cautions here that an officer does not have probable cause to arrest a person for a crime when he knows she could not be convicted of that crime. The court also reminds us that if the police learn information that destroys their probable cause to arrest a defendant, the arrest may become illegal. United States versus Russian is another Fourth Amendment case. Law enforcement officers seized two cell phones during their arrest of Mr. Russian. They applied for a warrant to search both of these phones as well as Mr. Russian's home. A state judge issued a warrant authorizing the search of the home and the seizures of any phones in the home, but the warrant did not authorize any search of the phones that had already been seized. Law enforcement searched those phones anyway, and Mr. Russian moved to suppress the fruit of that search at his trial on drugs and guns. The district court denied the motion. Mr. Russian was convicted, and he appealed. On appeal, the Tenth Circuit agreed with Mr. Russian that the search warrant lacked particularity with respect to the seized cell phones. The warrant neither identified the phones nor specified what materials officers were authorized to seize from the phones. But the Tenth Circuit agreed with the government that the search of these phones was conducted in good faith and that the admission of the phone's contents was harmless, so Mr. Russian ultimately loses. He did get some sentencing relief, though. Mr. Russian argued that the district court plainly erred in using a stale felony conviction to calculate his guideline range and in imposing a sentence on one count that exceeded the statutory maximum. The government conceded error on these points. Federal sentencing is complicated. Even judges get it wrong sometimes, and so Russian is yet another cautionary lesson about reading that pre-sentence report, cross-checking all of the relevant guidelines and the relevant statutory limits. In United States v. Bustamante Conchez, the Tenth Circuit sitting on banc reversed the defendant's 240-month drug sentence because his sentencing judge completely failed to give him an opportunity to allocute. Lots of good stuff in this case about the purpose and broad scope of allocution. It looks relevant to both federal and state practitioners. And I should also add this is a case about how the court conducts plain error review with respect to allocution, so it's also required reading for you federal appellate geeks out there. United States v. Thomas is a Hobbs Act robbery case. Here the Tenth Circuit holds that an aggressive push is sufficient to establish the violent force required to sustain a Hobbs Act conviction. The court also holds in Thomas that an in-court identification does not have to be subject to pretrial screening by the judge. Now, I want to be clear about this. The court says pretrial screening is not necessary, but the court doesn't say it's not allowed. It may turn out I'm wrong about this, but I still think there may be times when an in-court ID would be so suggestive and unreliable that it could be subject to a due process-based motion in limine. I don't think Thomas rules this out, and if the judge will give you that hearing, you might be able to make that showing before trial rather than running the risk of a mistrial when the ID is made during court. Lastly, in Thomas, the Tenth Circuit rejects Mr. Thomas's argument that one of his robbery counts should have been severed because it happened three years before the other robberies. It was a different sort of robbery, and it would be proved by different kinds of evidence. These robberies were similar enough, says the court, convictions affirmed. United States v. John is a very fact-specific sexual abuse case. Here, the Tenth Circuit affirmed Mr. John's convictions, rejecting confrontation and instructional arguments. 
In United States versus Wireman, the Tenth Circuit held that the district court's failure to explain its refusal to grant a downward variance from the child pornography guideline was not error. A couple of notes, though, from Wireman. First, the court holds that policy critiques of the child pornography guideline, like Mr. Wireman raised, are undoubtedly non-frivolous. Second, the court encourages district courts to go beyond the bare minimum when they explain their sentencing decisions. As the court says, it never hurts, and it can only help, for a district court to directly address and refuse a defendant's arguments for leniency. And that's the news from Denver. Moving on to our Kansas cases. In State v. Ritz, the Kansas Supreme Court upheld Mr. Ritz's felony murder and fleeing and eluding convictions, rejecting claims that the district court should have severed one of the fleeing eluding charges that had happened during a different event, and that the district court should have instructed the jury on a lesser offense, and that the court's reliance on Mr. Ritz's prior convictions at sentencing violated Apprendi. State v. Holt is a restitution case. Mr. Holt was given a hard 25 life sentence with a consecutive 13-year sentence on top of that. He told the court he didn't have any property and he had less than $100 in cash. Mr. Holt was already serving time, making $9 a month at his prison job. Were these circumstances enough to show that over $12,000 of restitution was unworkable? Nope. Restitution is the rule, and unworkability is the exception. It is the defendant's burden to show unworkability, and Mr. Holt didn't do that here, says the Kansas Supreme Court. Well, what should he have done? Apparently, he should have pulled out his crystal ball and shown that, if he is ever released 38 years or more from now, he will not in that future have the resources to pay that $12,000. In other words, you have to prove inability to pay upon release, no matter how unlikely or far into the future that release may be, in order to claim unworkability of restitution. In State v. LaPointe, the Kansas Supreme Court held that the state may not take an appeal from a question reserved after a district court grants post-conviction DNA testing, but before that testing is conducted and any post-testing proceedings have been completed. State v. Lundberg is a securities case. Here, the Kansas Court of Appeals holds that Kansas has jurisdiction over securities offenses where a portion of the securities selling process occurred in Kansas. Take a look at Lundberg if you want to understand how territorial jurisdiction works in a securities case. Lastly, we have State v. Stanley from the Kansas Court of Appeals. This case was actually decided last spring, but it was not published until this month. Stanley is a DUI case. Mr. Stanley had a prior DUI conviction from Missouri that was used to enhance his Kansas sentence. He objected, arguing that Missouri's DUI statute covers more conduct than Kansas's DUI statute, including conduct that would be innocent in Kansas. The Court of Appeals agreed. Under the DUI statute, a prior DUI conviction from another state can only trigger enhanced penalties in Kansas if that other state prohibits the same acts that the Kansas DUI law prohibits. Simply put, the Missouri law doesn't match the Kansas law, and so a Missouri DUI can't be used to increase a Kansas DUI sentence. 
Stanley is a great reminder that whenever a prior conviction from another state makes a difference to a Kansas sentence, we need to look closely at that other state's law to see whether the prior really qualifies as a predicate offense in Kansas. And that is our show for today. Want to talk back? Email me at justincasepodcast at gmail.com. I'm Paige Nichols, and I'll be back again in two weeks. Oye, 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 wherefore, whereby, we're ready to wear. Rest you to cutter, give me pizza cutter, just in case.